This is a talk by Fred Chambers titled Spiritual Psychology 104, Hindu Perspective, recorded June 27, 2010 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So I want to mention some books, first of all, that I've used in my talk. This one is about 50 years old, but it's Hindu Psychology by Swami Akhilananda. It's meaning for the West. So it's kind of a good overview of some Hindu psychology and how it applies to the West and some differences and similarities. What's his name again? Swami Akhilananda. Ananda. And this one is Standing as Awareness by Greg Good. He's a philosopher, it's a direct path, teachings. He lives in New York City. Is the book in the library? I, no, I was going to recommend it to Jennifer, but it's... No, I didn't see it in the library when I checked. Uh, this one is in the library. The Textbook of Yoga Psychology by Ramamurti Mishra, M.D., Included in this is a translation of the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which is kind of interesting. I think as Westerners we hear the word yoga and we're so accustomed to just thinking of Hatha yoga, the, the different positions and breathing techniques. But the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras are really kind of a mind training or a commentary on mind training, so it's... It's good to broaden our perspective on what yoga actually means. Okay. So I've been doing a series of talks on spiritual psychology and surveying different spiritual traditions and seeing what they have to say about psychology. And today I'm going to talk about the Hindu perspective of psychology. They actually have a well-developed system. It also includes Buddhistic thought because Buddhism and Hinduism have been on the same continent since the 5th century BC, so the, a lot of their thoughts kind of intermingle with each other. And they also include in their system superconsciousness, which Western psychology kind of leaves out. It's really kind of equivalent to uh, an enlightened state, the superconsciousness is kind of a technical term they use which naturally means that they acknowledge the fundamental reality that underlies everything. That's kind of a a definition of spiritual psychology, is acknowledging the fundamental reality that psychology kind of includes thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. And so something that acknowledges the underlying reality of those three kind of uh, includes a spiritual psychology. So today I'm going to talk about two different yogas in the Hindu tradition, the Raha Yoga, which is basically a mind training using uh, meditation, and a variation of the Janana Yoga, which is knowledge, seeing our divine nature through knowledge. So the Hindu psychologists conclude that there's an urge for eternal happiness and eternal existence in the human mind. The search for abiding happiness is the real motive behind a person's activities, conscious and subconscious. And this tendency to destruction in humans, whether it's through war or anger, is the perverted application and the erroneous understanding of this urge for happiness. Basically, it's just if we're involved in self-centered pursuits, we're never going to find abiding happiness. It's always going to create conflict in our mind or in relation to other people. And uh, the Hindu psychologists say the greatest expression of mind is in its total illumination. Its illumination is to know the truth directly. And this is achieved by the subjective methods of concentration, meditation, and the consequent mental integration. And they say the greatness of mind is judged not by its ability in action, not outer expression or objective observations, But the integration and the unification of mind is where its greatness lies. This integration definition would be the organization of all these psychological traits and tendencies into a harmonious whole. To the Hindus, religion is not a barrier to psychological development. It's the very basis for total illumination of the mind. Who am I? Why do I exist? What is my relationship to this objective world in which I find myself every day? 
So again, this points to know thyself is really the key to wisdom. And the self, with a capital S, the self is consciousness, is the unchangeable reality. And the small self, or the mind, gets its power by the association with consciousness. The same way a light bulb gets its power from the electricity that flows through it. And we seemingly become individualized, start to think we're individuals, by virtue of ignorance. Just literally we're ignoring the true reality that's around us all the time. Humans actually possess a peculiar relationship with God. Until we have a definite realization of that connection, there's really no peace. The inherent tendency in humans is to be universal. Joy is in the infinite, not in the finite. So says the Hindu scriptures, the Upanishads. So again, until this innate urge for bliss is fulfilled, no satisfaction can be found in life. But actually we don't realize we possess this bliss all the time, a deep well of this bliss. They have this analogy of a musk deer who develops this scent of the musk and is around this navel. As it gets older, it gets a scent of this musk and it searches everywhere trying to locate where this musk is. It doesn't realize that it's creating it itself or it contains it within itself. And that's our same situation. This, this unchanging reality is actually our true nature, but we're always looking somewhere else for it. And this, the Hindu psychology also acknowledges the sub- subconscious mind, which the Western psychology talks about. They say that conscious states of mind and our behaviors greatly depend on things that we cannot consciously be aware of. They say that the past impressions make up the subconscious mind. And Swami Vivekananda, who lived in the last half of the 19th century, says every movement of the body, every thought we think, leave an impression on the mind. Even when such impressions aren't obvious on the surface, they're still strong enough to work beneath the surface. And our character is actually determined by the sum total of these impressions. Oftentimes these impressions start to rise from this water closet of our subconscious. And there's often these fear or anger, things that we don't want to uh, look at. So the conscious mind starts to push it away, repress it. And that's actually uh, defense mechanisms that psychology talks about. I mean, we've probably all heard of things like projection and passive-aggressive behavior. Those are defense reactions. Some anger or fear arises, and it's obviously not ours. We're never angry, and so we tend to project it out onto somebody else in the world. Somebody says something to us, and we have this strong, angry reaction, and and we perceive them as, as being angry toward us, and we project it's actually our own feeling onto somebody else. Or another way that people deal with these strong, quote-unquote, negative emotions that start to arise is addiction. Alcohol, drugs, sexual addictions, whatever it might be, kind of cover over all the negative emotions or all the strong emotions that arise that we don't want to take a look at, all the pain and the suffering. And a more positive way to deal with these is Sublimation, substituting one emotion for another. Whether we're envious of someone else, to substitute, you know, they they have some job that we would like, or they got a promotion, we would wish we had that. Instead of being envious, it would be just to to realize, well, I can do that too. And so this kind of this energy of all accomplishing wisdom, or you know, you're just motivated to work harder to to get the promotion next time. And also relationships with, the, with a spiritual teacher or a therapist. Also ways to really look at these repressed tendencies that start to arise. And self-analysis is another way. Often through meditation and spiritual practices, we start to get a glimpses of what our mind is really, how it functions. And we start to gain insight into these tendencies we have to repress things. And the Hindus actually strongly advocate this self-analysis along with religious methods of self-discipline, single-pointed concentration, and ethical or moral practices. And all these together, you kind of build up a sound philosophy of life 
And you don't have to be a mere creature of your past anymore. You can actively change the way you function in the world. Create new impressions instead of reacting to old impressions that we've been living with for all our lives. You can change the quality of your mental habits in the present. Make for yourself new hope, new possibilities. They also say that will is of vital importance to every individual. And that one of the primary conditions of this will is conviction and faith in ourselves. But it's not a selfish faith, because there's in religion there's this doctrine of oneness. So this faith means faith in all, because we are all. So to develop the will, we need a calmness of mind and conviction. So just one simple way to do that is to complete an action, whatever it is. It's like baking a cake. The mind always gets restless. It wants to start one project and then jump to another one and come back. But if you can just, doing some baking, if you're going to bake a cake, we'll just stay there and finish the cake. It doesn't matter if it's a good cake or a bad cake. Just complete it. And that's one way to kind of help train the mind to just be focused and not jumping around and so restless. And this one-pointed concentration, that's a focus of, especially of this Raha, Raja Yoga, where you're training the mind to, to become a single focus. An analogy is like the sun rays. In the winter solstice, the sun is down at an angle and the, the rays are diffused and we don't get as much heat. But the summer solstice, like we just had there, the sun is more directly overhead, and so there's more energy and heat that, that reaches us. So there's more focus. But even to take that one step further is you take a magnifying glass out in the sun, and you direct it into a single point, and it has the power to start a fire. So that's the power of single-pointed attention. That uh, reminds me of the, probably my favorite quote from the Bhagavad Gita. Whence this lifeless dejection, Arjuna, in this hour, the hour of trial? Grown men know not despair, for that wins neither heaven nor earth. Throw off this ignoble discouragement, and arise like a fire that burns all before it. So that's that conviction, and that will, to really go after whatever you're going to do. And in the process of, if you have this conviction to seek heaven, to seek the divine truth, well, in the process, you're going to realize that your will is God's will. There's no separate will there. But in a sense, you really need the will, this conviction, to really stay on the path and keep going. So, Professor Gordon Allport, uh, he lived in the 20th century. He used to be a psychology professor at Harvard University. He said, spirituality is a search for a value underlying all things. It's the most comprehensive of all possible philosophies of life. Deeply moving religious experience is not readily forgotten. It remains a focus of thoughts and desires. So again, he's pointed at changing our philosophy of life or coming up with this philosophy of life, this spirituality of finding the value of what underlies all things. So the, actually the practice of concentration is the kernel of religious evolution, the Hindus say. The human mind is an arena of conflicting urges and emotions. And we all cling to apprehensions, fears, unpleasant and disturbing feelings, even though we know that our peace of mind is being destroyed. It's very difficult to dissolve conflicting emotions and thoughts unless we have developed this power of concentration. The steady practice of concentration relaxes the mind. Restless thoughts become single and one-pointed. The nervous system relaxes. Now the regularity in practicing this meditation is of vital importance. We develop this habit for the mind to become peaceful. Swami Brahmananda's advice, another Hindu teacher from the late 19th, early 20th century, he says, perform a little meditation every day. Never fail to do it. The nature of mind is to run away like a restless boy. Drag it back whenever it seeks to go out and set it on God. Continue this struggle two or three years and you will find in you a joy unspeakable. So it's not an easy fix. Two or three years might even be a short time for some of us. 
I remember reading a quote by Teresa Avila. She again was talking about doing meditation practice. She said, do it two or three years, or even ten years, unless we're considered cowards to be running away from this thing. So it can take a while. So why don't we do a little practice? We'll do a concentration practice. We'll just get in a comfortable position. And the practice we usually do here is on the breath. Again, it's a, it's it's a concentration, a single point of practice, because whenever we're distracted by thoughts, noises, whatever it is, we return our attention to the breath. So it's actually a training of attention. Attention is always scattered. Hear something or some thought will arise about what we're going to be doing later and we're off into some story. So we're always trying to bring it back through this practice of concentrating on our breath. But the Hindus also, they have japa practice where you repeat a name of God. Om is another practice, it's the sound of Om. Another practice they do to um, concentrate the attention. So, any of those you want to try? We normally try the breath here because it doesn't have any baggage. You don't have to believe in anything to follow your breath. So, we'll meditate seven or eight minutes here. I'll ring the bell once to start and twice when we're done. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. The value of doing these single pointed concentration practices is that it frees attention from habitually following our thoughts. And so then when we get a glimpse of pure consciousness, the mind has the power to stay there without turning away so easily. That's the same reason they, they recommend these moral and ethical practices, doing precepts or the Ten Commandments if you practice those. Again, it's to train the body and the mind to let all these selfish, self-centered desires go. Keep this training to be focused, single-focused on seeking the divine wherever it is. One must remove the ego and selfishness to reach the goal of a spiritual path. And they mentioned Jesus' second commandment was, Love thy neighbor as thyself. But his first commandment was, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, and all thy strength. So don't forget that the aim and goal of true religion, true spiritual psychology, I would add, is to directly know God, ultimate reality, pure consciousness, whatever word you want to use. So we're going to uh, shift gears just a little bit now and talk about... Um, the direct path approach is presented by Greg Good in his book, Standing as Awareness. He was influenced by the teachings of Sri Atmananda, who lived in the first half of the 20th century. And these teachings are actually kind of a, a variation of the Janana practices, the self-inquiry teachings made popular by Ramana Maharshi in the last century. 
I met Greg at the Science and Non-Duality Conference down in the Bay Area last fall. We went to one of his talks, and he did a nice job of presenting his methods. He is a philosopher. Like I said, he, works, he lives in New York City, sees clients, and he uses Socratic dialogue as a way to help these clients explore their issues and their suffering in life. And again, know thyself is really the heart of this teaching. But also, it's really, you need to trust your direct experience. And so, in a sense, it's kind of exciting because you don't need to do all this long hours of meditation, years of meditation. All you need to do is just listen and trust your direct experience. Boom, you're right there. Snap of fingers. That's the good news. The bad news is that most of us are so habitually conditioned to follow the mind and and really not trust our direct experience, that we're not really ready to hear these teachings and always looking somewhere else. Or the mind has so many doubts that come up. In a sense, you have to suspend your disbelief. So if you can do that for the next few minutes, and then you can let the disbelief come back in. <laughs> but maybe you'll see something before it does. Yeah, I know for me it was probably... A, I did 10 years of meditation before I was really able to kind of really hear these teachings and have a profound effect on uh, the way I started to see things. Standing as awareness. So let's give some definitions of what it, awareness is, at least in uh, Greg's terms. It is the single subject of all objects, the formless that sees all form. Consciousness is a synonym for awareness. So they're the, actually the same thing in, in his interpretation. Sometimes it's called being to indicate it's not a complete voidness. Sometimes it's called knowledge to indicate it's an antidote to ignorance. And sometimes it's called love to indicate it's an open, inviting, generous, intimate nature, free of limitation and suffering. So if you stand as awareness, awareness sees and I see. They are the same thing. Awareness is the eye. Awareness itself cannot be seen. It's not an object. It's not a thing. Awareness is already always present. It's infinitely closer than any concept, term, or image. It is open clarity within which objects arise, subsist, and subside. It is present when objects are not present, it is open, loving spaciousness of you. But our experience usually seems dualistic, though. And the subject-object duality is usually the most fundamental duality of all. See ourselves and the world out there. But even then, it's not always there. If we're lost in a sunset or an exciting movie, this subject-object gap isn't felt at all. Or if you're a sports person being in the zone, I heard baseball player George Brett talk about talk about being in the zone. He said he'd go up to bat, and the next thing you know, he'd be standing on the second base. He was just so in the zone, so in the moment, had no recollection of, of hitting the ball, the ball being pitched, seeing it, hitting it, running. And he'd stand on second base, and it comes back to seeing himself as an eye in this, this world again. So these times when the subject-object duality isn't felt is the same as standing as awareness. And this standing characterizes the relationship between you and what you experience. When it seems that your eye is the body, then it seems like you're in a world of bodies. And when it seems like your eye is the mind, then it seems like you're relating to a world of minds out there, communicating with other minds. But when you stand as awareness, awareness is your experience. And as you kind of deepen your perspective on this, there's two aspects of uh, the standing as awareness. When objects you witness don't seem like any kind of entity at all, just appearances in awareness, this is the higher witness. You're the higher witness just seeing appearances. And then, when you start to investigate that a little more, when you don't experience objects or appearances at all, everything just has the taste of awareness or pure consciousness. 
That's when the witness has dissolved or collapsed into pure awareness or pure consciousness. So when you start to take this stand as awareness, what goes for awareness goes for you. Awareness doesn't suffer, so neither do I. Awareness doesn't come and go, neither do I. Awareness is open and spacious, so am I. There are no limits, edges, or borders to awareness, none to me either. Awareness is present during the presence of objects, the absence of objects, and beyond all objects, so am I. So just to get a little taste of this, what this is, we'll just try a little experiment. Again, this isn't meditation, it's just noticing. So I'll read this a couple times. Just be without preconceived notions. Don't even have any notions about awareness. Don't be a body or a mind. Don't take yourself as anything at all. And just openly notice how images and appearances and even points of view come and go. But check to see whether you have the experience that you come and go. Or do you, as witnessing awareness, remain perfectly and peacefully present and unmoving, clear and open? So just sit here for a few minutes. We'll do this. After we're quiet for a few seconds, I'll just read this again. might be a pointer for you. So just be without preconceived notions. Don't even have any notions about awareness. Don't be a body. Don't be a mind. Don't take yourself as anything at all. Just openly notice how images and appearances and even points of view and thoughts come and go. But check to see whether you have the experience that you come and go. Or do you, as witnessing awareness, remain perfectly and peacefully present and unmoving? If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Taste of that, taste of standing as a ring. I felt for a few moments that I didn't even feel my body. Then when I thought that I didn't feel my body, I felt it. <laughs> I mean, I just kind of, oh, I don't feel my body, then boom, it was there. I mean, so it's so hard to, you know, if that was a zone for a few minutes, and as soon as I realized, I, then I came back. So, and then well, I get it, back it, to the, the conditioning or whatever, because I, I felt, if I just let it go, but then I went, oh, don't feel my body. Boom. I felt it. Well, there's nothing wrong with feeling the body. Well, it's I just, just identification. It was like the identification. Body there. Then when I thought about it, then it, it sort of was there. Yeah. Well, it's I always going to... I mean, that's our normal experience anyway. The body comes and goes, our awareness of it. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I was kind of disappointed that it was like, oh, well, I lost that zone, whatever it was I was in. It can seem free when we aren't aware of the body. I mean, it can kind of seem like a free moment. Well, Brett did realize he was on second base. Maybe it was that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it always comes back into awareness. But then it's to see that that's, that's just a feeling, or it's a thought arising. I don't know if the thought, I am my body, or here I am back here. But again, that's just another arising. Oh, so that's okay then. Yeah, it's just. Uh, I just want to know if it's okay. <laughs> Everything's okay. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you know, if this kind of resonates with you and you start to get a little taste of it, it talks about kind of falling in love with awareness, kind of really pulls you in the direction of investigating this more. And so by falling in love, he means being curious, having a yearning to investigate this more. And there's this sweetness that you start to feel, and you're on a 
kind of see what that is. So you're drawn to closely investigate this. You have a desire to draw near to it. But then you start to ask, is there a near and a far? Can I be far away from this awareness? And it becomes like a treasure hunt. And finding the treasure is finding there is nothing other than awareness. Now, the direct path teachers talk about the higher reasoning, higher reason. It's like you stand above the mind as awareness and you investigate the nature of mind. You see that everything is experienced as objects arising in awareness. And they can't exist apart from this witnessing awareness. And the more you do this, then you start to investigate the witness itself. And you find that it is just a subtle structure superimposed upon awareness. And then the witness starts to gently and peacefully collapse back into awareness. It can really appeal to somebody with a scientific mind because this higher reason follows the canons of scientific investigation, adheres to empirical evidence, and can be replicated by you and others. And scientists in the crowd, you can just go for it. So to uh, do a little experiment with higher reasoning, we'll take a look at something in the physical physical world that always seems like you have this sense that subject-object duality. So we'll take this lamp and we'll investigate this with higher reason. And we're just going to investigate our visual sense of this lamp. Now thoughts might be arising about the lamp, but you can realize that if your eyes are closed, those thoughts can still arise, so they aren't part of the direct visual experience of the lamp. These thoughts aren't. So just let those thoughts go and just attend to the, your direct visual experience. So what do we see? Color and shape, right? See a lot of black and white top there. And this color and shape are what we usually call form. Notice there's no color without shape and no shape without color. And actually, the shape is based on the interface between two shades of color. The background is we have this yellow wall here. And so the kind of the borders and the outline, the shape of the lamp, or what we call a lamp, is based on the interface between the black and the yellow, or the white and the yellow. Also, things like height, how we judge height, is, is based on the color. See a color up so far? this concept about, well, that's a certain height. It's based on the color. It's just our visual experience of color. Also, the depth of objects is based on solid areas of color and interrupted or broken areas of color. So this black color is uninterrupted, so we say that's in front of. And the yellow wall behind is interrupted when we look at the lamp, so we say the wall is in back of. So as we continue to investigate, what are the, some of the things we start to realize is that this lamp is not separate from form. We experience color, shape, and what we call form, but nothing else, but just visually. We don't experience any independence of the lamp. Vision doesn't communicate a lamp that exists, whether we see it or not. The colors and shapes in our vision don't communicate that they are about the lamp, that they refer to the lamp, that they're caused by the lamp. Now again, thoughts and theories about that might arise, but just our direct visual experience, color and shape, form. And then we might start to realize that form is not separate from scene. And we never experience form apart from scene. Like you can't get between form and scene. They're not two separate things. An unseen form is never experienced anywhere, same as an unthought thought. If you realize that, then you see that form is not something external. It's actually not independent of scene. They arise together. They're the same. Scene doesn't operate on form. Scene is another word for form. 
this is just your direct experience. Yet trust your direct experience. All these doubts start to rise. It can't be true. So if we continue to investigate this, another thing we might realize that seeing is not separate from witnessing awareness. When seeing is present, it's noted by awareness. When seeing is absent, absent it is this absence is noted by awareness. Just close your eyes. Awareness is still there, noting the absence of seeing. You open your eyes. Awareness notes seeing. So when seeing is absent, it's not waiting somewhere to reappear. So actually awareness is another word for seeing. Seeing has nowhere to go and nothing to be other than awareness. That realization is form is emptiness, emptiness is form. This is nothing but pure consciousness.
Just, right. just as all, everything outside of this room is going on everywhere, an infinite number of possible perceptions of what's going on out there are going on right now, and we're completely ignoring well, how do you, how do you know that they're going on? What? Well, that's, well, that's where I'm going. Well, yeah, that's first where I'm going is we, we, we're ignoring it just as they're all ignoring us, so we're all living... Well, you're, you're still you're assuming that they're out there. How, why? That assumption is just the thought arising in your awareness. Well, okay, well, there, that's where the, the fear arises, is because... Well, that's good. Well, fear, fear is actually good. Yeah. Well, go ahead. So, yeah, so we're all, just as they are, just as every individual is, living in these states of either ignoring everything that's going on outside of their own immediate experience, or it's not actually going on. Uh, <laughs> either way, it gets a little bit... Either way, it's not normal. So, but the fact being that you know, we, we intellectualize this, but allowing the reality of this to dawn on the mind, it would have to bring another state of awareness because it is so absolutely shocking and absolutely in contradiction to virtually everything in our experience or in our interpretation of experience up until now. Yeah, I mean, society is geared toward subject-object duality. I mean, in, into assuming that it's all going on outside of our yeah. experience, including us yeah. as well. I mean, we've been conditioned to believe that or to live that reality for all our lives. I mean, that's why it's good to have things like spiritual groups to come to, because when you investigate this stuff, it does seem crazy. Pretty woo-wee out there. I mean, if you're in groups with people who are committed to investigate this, well then it's like you feel a little less crazy. Or at least you're in a company with similar crazy people. <laughs> but the, and the fear, when you mean fear arising, there's, that's really an indication that you really understand the kind of the depth of the teachings. And where are they arising? It's just a sensation, it's arising in awareness. And just as, it's accept, as these things are arising in awareness, when we all leave here through some act of will or intention, we will all go on to the next scene of our choice. We'll walk through the building, we'll go in our car, we'll go home. All of these new arisings being in some way something that we're directing. I mean, we could choose to go home, we could choose to go to the mall. We could well, to stay here, we, you know? Is there a you directing it, though, I guess? Things arise, we, choices are made, but is there a you that's doing it all? Michael has a comment. Well, this is what Jerry's talking about. And this is where the fear comes from, because we take it for granted, and we assume it so much, so conditioned, that when you do see that crack in there, and usually that comes from it seems like meditating for a number of years gives you that spaciousness to actually see it, then that fear really can come in there because are we really creating any of this stuff? I mean, if you if you suspend disbelief for a little while and just walk around and really do it for a bit, it's difficult to say that we're controlling anything. There's conditioned stuff that happens, but what's going to happen in the next moment, don't know. And that can be pretty scary. When you first Lois. To me, it's, it's all back to the fear of separateness. I mean, if you're saying this is my experience, then it's scary. But for me, it's wonderful. Because it isn't mine. I, I mean, it's just there to enjoy. Mm. Or not. <laughs> right, yeah. So you're, what did you say about the fear, though? I think the fear is, again, the fear that you're separate, that you see yourself oh. as separate rather than part of everything. I mean, to me, that would be the only scary thing there. When you see yourself as a separate person, well, then there's this fear because... You fear you're well, maybe I'm going to dissolve the whole right. world if I forget about it. Right. <laughs> but if you don't see yourself as separate, you know... Yeah, it's just all peacefully and harmoniously arising. And it's beautiful. It's just a word. I mean, that's kind of when you kind of get a little sense of it, it's like, wow, it's beautiful. So you don't have to worry about everything else. 
anything. If you can just be aware, then you don't have to worry about anything. Is that true? Well, that's, that's true in the bigger picture. I mean, ultimately, you don't have to worry about anything, but things might arise in life yeah. that you have to make decisions about. Right, but that's when you worry about that. Yeah. Not right, not, not ahead of time. <laughs> when you have to make a decision, you make a decision. You don't worry about it for months or weeks. Or who, who makes a decision? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I can. Well, I found the uh, lamp experiment interesting because, you know, being having been in art all my life, you know, vision is my dominant, you know, mode. But I was realizing, uh, sitting here, that I'm looking at this lamp from a certain angle. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the photons are reaching my eye, and you know, the, the seeing, and so on. Trying to teach art is interesting, too, because particularly at the college level, because you have all these suppositions that people have built up, you know, and you get them in there, and you're trying to point it back with the oh, they just they, they can't see it. But I realized that if I were to shift over there, you know, six feet, and look at the lamp, I would be ha- literally be having a, a completely different experience. And so there are an infinite potential, the infinite number of points of view you could use to look at the lamp. But each time I, I, I shifted, I would still be the experience of looking at the lamp, that the right. lamp and I would be one. And the seeing and the lamp and I would all be one package. And, and so that, mm-hmm. I found that kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Exercise. Yeah. Good. They do that with sound too. Yeah, sound is actually an easier one to do it with because we don't have as many preconceived notions about sound. There, it's easier to just see them arising, and passing away, and they just arise in awareness, pass away in awareness. Um, Vision is harder because we have these. The mind comes in. We are also conditioned to. Well, of course that exists, whether I'm looking at it or not. I mean, that's how we are, we're all brought up. I was going to say, uh, do you remember when Tom, you took the class, Tom, mm-hmm. the class where he picked up this box, kind of an elongated box, and he pointed the, the one end straight to his thumb. This mm-hmm. is one form. He turns it sideways, and he turns it flat ways, and then it's angled, and it really proves how many, just one box that you'd look at and say, oh, that's a box, but <laughs> all these different, really strange different shapes that... Isn't it kind of like that, what you're saying with the map that, of that different aspects? That brought the discussion about cubism, which is actually an yeah, that's to, what to draw an object from multiple points of view at the same time. Because uh-huh. then you're looking at the painting, and it's only, you know, it's got one aspect of it. So it's a lot of paradoxes there. Uh, I never knew what cubism was about. That's what it is. Anything else? Any other questions or comments? Yeah, Steve. Um, one of the, the things that's always helped me in, uh, in doing the uh, direct experience investigation of awareness is going through the senses, the, the vision, the hearing, uh, the body sensations, taste. When you go through all of those, each time you go through one of the senses, there's always something that's left. There's one thing that's always there, and that is that sense of awareness. So if we're doing the experience with the lamp, I close my eyes, and the lamp is gone. But what is there when I'm, what's the one thing that's always there when I'm closing my eyes? And that is that awareness that uh, Jeff Good was, was speaking about. And that's always helped me grasp that the whole concept of the investigation is what am I really left with? And then there's just that awareness and to allow all to arise within, say, uh, spacious awareness that because of that awareness that's there, everything has can potentially arise out of that. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so that's always helpful. Yeah, no, that's actually a good point because we actually... <coughs> We, at the center, we teach this choiceless awareness and spacious awareness, which we go through all the senses and, and look at them one by one, and uh, just notice them as arisings or whatever you want to label them. But yeah, they're just arising in awareness, and then, then they dissolve back into awareness. You go through the senses, and then you expand your awareness or your attention out into the 
just into the spacious awareness around you. It follows that just like what you're saying. You, you go through the senses and it's all, all awareness all the way down. Just let all the senses go. And your choice is to wear whatever arises, but it's all arising in this spacious awareness. So that's where you can start to gain insights. Similar to these, you just gain insights into the direct nature of what is arising. So that's the difference between what's temporary and what's not temporary. That's the big point, isn't it? What's, yeah. What's yeah. yeah. What is always there is what we call God or consciousness or awareness, the permanent reality. Does the lamp have eyesight when we turn it on? Does it have eyesight? <laughs> <laughs> it's not plugged into electricity. It's not, it's not plugged into the power source. It doesn't have anything. Anything else? Comments, questions? I guess one other thing just to add on with the choiceless awareness. One thing I've done is try to figure out where the boundary really is, and that's been a big part of my my practice for years is like, okay, I can see this, but where am I actually seeing it, in it um, or hearing it? Am I hearing from the inside or outside? Is the sound of those birds, is it the outside? or is it the inside? And really playing with that, these, the illusion of boundaries, that it seems so concrete, that I as a separate person am experiencing all this, but really is that true? Where is all this? Where is it all arising in? Actually, in his book he talks about the container metaphor. Kind of trips a lot of people up because we think that this awareness or consciousness is contained in this container of the body. But when you investigate it, similar to the lamp, actually, when you investigate where, you know, what is the mind or the body, it arises. Again, it's like, I guess I mentioned it earlier, it's, it's like we can notice that the mind is restless, so the mind is calm. But that all arises in awareness. Awareness never really arises in the mind when you look at it. All, you, all you'll find is a stream of thoughts, but never any mind. Where is awareness? <laughs> I mean, well, as soon as you lose that boundary, then it's everywhere. everywhere. It has no limits. Adi Ashanti does this teaching where it's always one step back into yourself. It's like, what's below that? What's under that? What's it come down to? <laughs> okay. Well, remember we're closed next Sunday, 4th of July. So enjoy the holiday. Shall we meet again? Peace to you.